we, we are creatures here of the Word. Uh, so our focus weekly is on what the Bible would say to us. We can sing as many songs, we can give as many talks as you might ever want to hear, but at the end of the day, we're here to hear from our Lord and Savior. Uh, that's why we're here today. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, Luke 16, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might recall that we spent some time in, in Luke chapter 15 with the parables of the lost sheep, uh, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. Today we're looking at the parable of the dishonest manager. Uh, contextually, uh, this passage seems to come right in that same teaching time that we saw in chapter 15. Jesus is focusing now, though, uh, specifically towards his disciples. And we should be reminded each week. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if we take this for granted or if it's just me who takes it for granted that, that when we see Jesus engaging in his ministry, we should be reminded that it was him who took the first step. It was him who condescended, who came to earth, who, who took the time to reach out. It was him who, who taught when, when nobody even seemed to have ears to listen. Uh, he was willing to take that first step towards us. The, there, there are days when I forget that. Uh, we, we might even be puffed up at times thinking that, that, we, that, we really, that we're really going all out uh, spiritually by, by coming to worship or, or actively engaging in a private devotional, if, if we even do that. But the profound truth is that it was Jesus who reached out to his people in his time. And it's by his spirit that he comes to us today. Uh, so let's stand together now. Would you stand with me? And let's look at Luke chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am afraid, ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may re- they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would be at work here now. I pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to yourselves. Lord, that you would speak 
through this, through what might uh, be confusing, through what might be uh, a difficult passage to understand. Lord, I pray that you would speak so clearly that we could not help but hear from you. Lord, I pray that my weakness, that my failings would not get in the way of what you're trying to communicate to your people here today. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Lord, we pray that you would awaken our souls this day. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So it was uh, my sophomore year at the University of South Carolina. I'm sitting in a Christian theology class being taught by a tenured professor of religious studies at what happens to be a, uh, a state university, so you can make your own determinations as to how the, most of those classes tended to go. Um, he happens to uh, be a professing Christian who worships in a Greek Orthodox congregation, but he also maintains a sort of universalist view of salvation. Uh, it was uh, an all roads lead to the top of the same mountain type of mindset. Uh, essentially, the door is open to anyone who would, who would claim any sort of faith. Uh, doctrine isn't critical. What's most important is you have to have faith, right? Just, you've got to have faith. It was a, effectively, his theology could be summed up in a, in a George Michael song, right? You have to have faith, and that's all you have to have. Not really faith in anything, just faith in general. And so I found myself in a bit of a personal intellectual quandary. Uh, you see, I was convinced that this man teaching me was actually quite brilliant. And in fact, I took every course that I could take from him because I think he still is one of the clearest teachers of Christian doctrine that, that I've ever been around. The problem was he didn't seem to believe it. You see, as much as I appreciated him as a teacher, I couldn't get past the reality that he was in fact holding to mutually exclusive claims. And so it wound up being, for me, sort of an embodiment of what became known as C.S. Lewis's uh, trilemma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. He, he became, to me, an embodiment of that. It, you see, if my professor was so brilliant as I was convinced he was, if he was so smart, how could he hold that position? And if he held that position, how could he claim to be a follower of Christ? You see, if we're willing to accept Jesus as, as, just a, as a good moral teacher but not accept his claim to be God, we find ourselves in a, in a very perilous position. In fact, this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said that that is one thing we must not say. You see, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg. This is the British guy you know, speaking here. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You see, Jesus cannot be. By his own proclamation, he cannot be all things to all people because his very own words and witness won't allow it. And so this is what Lewis concludes. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And you see, that's the trilemma. It's the trilemma there. It's Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are the only options. Now, our passage today is a lordship passage. 
People have argued over the message of these words, probably on the same hillside that Jesus taught them. They have argued over this passage since he first spoke these words to his disciples. Some have, some have actually pointed to this passage. Some have pointed to Luke 16, pointed to this passage as a means of presenting Jesus as a man of flawed morals. See how he praises the dishonest manager? Finally, right? Finally, he's found out this guy's wrong. We didn't like him anyway. Now we know he's wrong. Well, let's tread carefully into this together and receive this teaching, not of a liar, okay? Not of a lunatic, but from our Lord. Look back at verses one and two. And one and two, we see that, that in this parable, there was a rich man and we see that the rich man had a manager, all right? So let's, let's pay attention here. So the man was a, he was of significant enough wealth that he employed an overseer of his estate. Uh, we, we might think of Joseph in the house of Potiphar in the Old Testament, right? That's, the, that's what the manager was for this rich man. Genesis 39.6 says of Potiphar that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. That's the type of arrangement that this, that this rich man has with his manager. This manager would have been in charge of everything in the home, literally everything inside, in the home with the exception of his position inside the home. There was one person over him the one who owned the house. And so he controlled everything but his own job. And we're told that charges were brought against the manager that he was wasting the possessions of the rich man. Now that's the same word. That word for wasting is the same exact word that we saw used over in 1513 to describe how the younger son, the prodigal son, was squandering his property with reckless living. It's the same idea. And the truth is, That's basically the only thing that this manager was not allowed to do. It doesn't say that he was stealing the property of the rich man. It doesn't say that. It says says that at this point, he, he just appears at best to be incompetent, perhaps lazy, just an irresponsible manager. Effectively, he's unqualified for the position that he has found himself to be in. The conversation with the manager was was brief. It's turn in your records, clean out your desk, you're done here, right? I've I've received charge that you are wasting it, you're done. There are no legal charges being pressed against him. He's not dragging him into court. Again, at this point, he hasn't been dishonest as far as we can tell. As the story is unfolding, this is a man who who has lost his job effectively because he wasn't able to do his job. Now now look back at verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, and the manager said to himself, I, I, I always like it when we get the internal monologue of a character in, in one of Jesus' uh, parables. It's an interesting way that he, he invites the audience into the conflict of the story. Here, here we have the manager devising his plan. He's coming up with a scheme for how he's going to restructure his life now that it has become, well, completely unraveled. And he's embarrassingly introspective. He says, I am not strong enough to dig. That's one of the reasons I always tell our young men to please learn a trade. Um, don't ever be that guy who, who is in the room and says, I'm just not strong enough to dig. Like that's, that's, that's an unfortunate position to be in. You need to be able to dig, all right? Or put something together. Uh, use a screwdriver. Anyway, that's a side story. Sorry. Um, this is a bit of a cultural commentary on our younger generation, but that's, that's not for this sermon. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Okay, so he's in a tough spot. He can't earn, he can't earn a living, but he's also too afraid to ask for anything. 
And so he sort of has this aha moment. You can see it coming to him there. The light comes on. He's got it. They, they say that necessity is the mother of invention, right? Oh, here's an example of where that seems to be the case. So what, what's his plan? Look at, look at five through seven with me real quick. Let's, let's, let's look at that. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Take your bill and write 80. However you understand what is happening in this verse, these verses. And, and we're effectively left with two options. There's basically two options for what's happening here. Option one is that the manager has been exacting interest on these loans, uh, like extraordinary levels of interest, uh, which, which was forbidden in Hebrew law. He should not have been doing that. And so he's been extending these loans, exacting interest. And now what he's doing is he's just taking that interest back out of it. There's a lot of people who want to believe that. Uh, that that's what's happening here, that he'd been charging interest. He wasn't supposed to do that. So now he calls in the debtors and he says, look, I'm taking the interest out. Now you just owe the 50 or now you just owe the 80. Um, and there were tales of, uh, especially in that time, where charging 100% interest on commodities like oil and like wheat. So that's option one. He's just releasing them from the interest that he had been charging. Or... Or he's simply stealing from the master in order to make friends with some folks who will be kind to him in his now very uncertain future. Either way, uh, this is where he is first identified as being dishonest. He was either dishonest on the front end, or he's dishonest now here in the present. Perhaps it's both, but before he was incompetent, now he's dishonest. Now look at verse 8. Look at what happens next. This is where the twist comes. We know that something is not right here, right? Uh, we could say something is not kosher here at this point, right? This is, he is violating Hebrew law at this point, so something is not right. And then we're told that the master commended the dishonest manager. Yeah, that's what it said. It said the master commended the dishonest manager. Like, what? I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm reading that right. It says the master commended the dishonest manager. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. And if you're sitting there hearing Jesus, who's this rabbi, who's this teacher, you're thinking, God wouldn't approve of that. Jesus, if he's holy, if he's God, as he claims to be, he would not approve of this. He would not commend this. So the skeptic says, there you see. And you, see, and you can almost see the people maybe in the background who've been there skeptical of this whole thing. You see them watching this unfold going, see, now we've got him. Now we've got him. Yeah, he, he's, he, he's not honest. You told me at the beginning that Jesus was a liar, that he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. There you have it. He's a liar. See, he supports dishonesty. He's encouraging it here. Why would the master commend that? Finally, it's all adding up. This is just a guy the charlatan who's manipulated the crowd. He's gotten us to like him, and now we see his true colors. Now we see what he's really about. You sort of hear that. In fact, in fact, that's why this parable is not just one of the most misunderstood. It's one of the most avoided. It's one of the most avoided parables. And if the sentence just stopped there, if the thought was completed that the master commended the, the dishonest manager, if that was all it said, then we would have a real problem here. But that's, that's not where it ends. See, the thought continues. 
It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For his shrewdness. The master commended the manager, not because of his dishonesty, not because he dealt treacherously with the master's property. He commended him for his shrewdness. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot, but it's for his acuteness, his, his craftiness, his, his willingness to, uh, to find a way where there seems to not be a way. It's, it's, another way that word could be used is, is called prudently. He was commended because he was being clever. He was acting with great practical intelligence. Something that something that prior to this, that he he appeared to be totally lacking. You see, in the eyes of the master, in the eyes of the master, he has gone from being incompetent at this point to being competent. He's gone from being incapable to being capable, from, from being wasteful to being now prudent and sensible. And that's the end of the parable. That's, that's where it stops. And so now we need to remember to whom it was that this parable was being, being spoken. Remember, it's to the disciples. That's what it said right there in verse 1. He told to the disciples. This is not just to the crowd. This is not just to the, to the whole mass of people that might be gathering. He's speaking specifically to his disciples at this point. And so his contem- commentary begins in the second part of verse 8. In the second part of verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I'm not sure that clears it up a whole lot for a whole lot of us, does it? All right. If you've ever heard the phrase, you can't take it with you, you have some idea of where Jesus is going with this. One of the mistakes that we have made, that, that, that have been made historically uh, with this parable, is to, is to try to read it allegorically. We, we, we do this with all of the parables. We have tried very intentionally here over the last few weeks to take these parables at face value, to not try and hyper-spiritualize them, but to try and find out what Jesus is trying to say. We try to assign meaning to each character beyond the obvious reading, and that's when, it gets, that's when everything gets all, all crazy. What we need to do is we need to take the entire parable here as a singular unit. And so that means that that there's no hidden meaning. I've I've heard it said that people are always looking for new revelation. God's people always want new revelation. I need God to show me a sign. I need God to speak to me when, when we don't even accept the revelation that he's already given us. We ignore the word that's given to us, hoping for a, a rainbow to part in the, uh, to break the sky, hoping that'll give us some sign. And God's going, I've already, I've given you a whole lot of pages. Like, get to work. Just read what I've already said to you. I've written you this incredible letter that you ignore. We need to be careful with it. Kent Hughes says that this parable, and I, I love this because I think it's, it's, it's just, he says it's the story of a dishonest household manager who has a terminal confrontation with his boss, engages in some serious reflection, and comes up with an ingenious solution. That's the parable, in a nutshell. And what Jesus is going to do is point out a singular attribute in this man that his disciples are being charged to take notice of. He's pointing out how this man has sought fervently and intelligently to enhance his situation. You see, it's, it's the necessity, the need for this new manner of living that has motivated this now prudent creativity on the part of the, mas- of the manager. 
And so he says, okay, Jesus says, this is how the sons of the world act. By the way, the sons of the world, those are those people that, that those are the dead in their trespasses and sins, right? That's what Paul said. Uh, dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. They are the ones who following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? This is how they act. This is how they act. This is how the sons of the world act. They, they work to take care of their first priority. In fact, they work really hard at it. They go to great lengths to protect themselves. They strive after it. Like with, with everything in them. They work really hard to make sure that they're okay. They run after it. They go for it. Jesus is saying, this is what they do, right? This is what they do. And so this stings a little today, or it should. I'm, I'm trying to emphasize that as much as I can. This is what they do. Which means it's not what you do. It's not what we do. Because we aren't in that camp. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. They do a better job at it. They demonstrate more wisdom. They demonstrate more care, more intentionality, and more ability than the sons of light. And he says, that's a credit to them. He commends it. This is a credit to them. It's a trophy. But, but Jesus is making a distinction here with the sons of light. You see, those are the disciples. So the disciples, the disciples of Jesus are the sons of light. Paul uses that language, that exact language in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, for you are, you are children of light, children of the day. So Jesus is pointing out that that, that which is a credit to the sons of this world is actually a defect in the sons of light. This parable is a cry against what I would just call sleepwalking faith. And the way Jesus demonstrates this is through an uncomfortable avenue. Look at what he's doing. He's going to their bank accounts. Okay, so verse 9 pops up and we read, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. All that is is just the worldly wealth. That's just worldly wealth. That's, that's, that's material abundance. What, make friends for yourselves with your material abundance. It's the thing that Matthew 6 says that, that moth and rust destroy, right? That thieves break in and steal. That's the unrighteous wealth. He says to use those things, to use these temporal things in order to make friends for yourself. And still some of us now are going, this feels awkward. I'm not sure this is okay. Are you allowed to say this in church? Use your money to make friends for yourself? That seems like I'm buying them. Couldn't I just Facebook this thing and take it? But stick with me here. I, I know this sounds weird, uh, but we have to keep reading because there's an aim in this. Jesus is not quite done yet. It's subtle, but we need to catch it at the end of verse 9. He says, what's the hope? He doesn't say, I'm asking you, what's the hope for those friends? What sort of friends are we to make? Look at his answer. It, it's, it's somewhat difficult to understand, but Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of your unrighteous wealth. There's... And then he says, so that. All right, so now we have a purpose statement. Jesus is boiling this thing down here. We have a purpose statement. He says, here's the why. So that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You see, these friends are not just acquaintances. 
Our whole concept of a friend has been so corrupted by the rise of social media, it's hard to tell if we even know what we're talking about when we say friend. But this isn't a call or command of Christ to go out and and throw big parties just to have a bunch of people around you. It's not a call from Christ to go out and spend every dime you've got being a part of the best social groups or the best clubs that you can find so so that people would know who you are. In a way, what this really is, is a pre-commission of Jesus Christ to go and use the resources that God has entrusted to you in order to introduce them, to introduce your friends to your Savior. And the end result is that when your days on earth come to an end, and they inevitably will, your days on earth will come to an end. That when they do, when your unrighteous wealth fails because you cannot take it with you, you'll have some neighbors ready to welcome you into the eternal dwellings. You see, like the shrewd, dishonest manager, the world uses the little things that it has, whatever leverage it has to manipulate the temporal situation of this life in order to maximize their comfort but not so with you. See, it will not be so for the sons of light. And so we see that it's not the manager's motivation that's being encouraged. It's not his motivation. No, it's, it's the sons of this world operate from a selfish motivation. It's to make sure that their world is, is, is well kept, to make sure their world is comfortable, to make sure that I'm taken care of, to protect myself. And that's a self-centered motivation. It's not the motivation that's being commended. It's the application of the motivation. It's the desire to actually use the things that God has entrusted to us for the kingdom. Okay, so what's the problem? How do we, how do we take this and apply this to our situation? Jesus is going to deal with that. Look back at verse 10 with me. One who is faithful... And a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is concerned here for the hearts of his disciples. As, as a good shepherd, he is constantly tending his flock. He sees the dangers. He understands that there, are, that there are trappings in this world. Like he knows the reality of the struggles you're gonna have in this world. He knows the temptations of your heart. He sees the, the thickets of briars that would, that would entangle us and ensnare us. And he knows, Jesus knows that your bank account has the potential to be one of those big old thorn bushes, that it might just grab hold of us and it might become our our motivating factor. And so one problem we see is that we still think that these temporal things, like we still think they actually belong to us. We, We think that all this stuff is ours. And like the sons of this world, we often fail to see the money, uh, the house, the cars, the security blankets that we use to insulate ourselves, even the little trinkets that we have all around us. We fail to see that all of that material stuff 
is in reality a trust from the Lord that he has given to us to oversee, that he's given to us to manage and to use not for our comfort, but for his benefit. You see, we are to invest it wisely, not for the temporal, but for the eternal. He wants us to understand our privilege. And if you are an American, you have more privilege than you could ever begin to understand in comparison to the rest of the world. He wants us to leverage that privilege for the sake of the kingdom. And that's why he finishes so strongly. Jesus doesn't doesn't dial it back on this one. He knows the temptations of your heart. He has walked in your shoes. And so he concludes by saying, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. You know, he said the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount. You can't serve two masters. You you can't do it. Our, Our true allegiance will eventually show. We'll be found out. If we revere money and possessions, if we place that idol in a place of supremacy in our lives, that's, that's what we will resemble. We will look like people who prioritize, who, who revere money and possessions. G.K. Beale, one of, my, one of my favorite contemporary theologians, says it this way. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What we revere what we hold as sacred, what we hold as, as ultimate, we will, we will resemble. And it will, either be for our, it will either be for our good or it will not be for our good. Jesus says it more succinctly at the end of this. He says, you cannot serve God in money. We can't. We can't, but, but we like to give it a shot. Um, and, and we think we're pretty good at it, in which case it puts us in a new sort of trilemma, Right? We don't believe that Jesus is a liar. We don't. We're here. That by, by virtue of that, you probably didn't walk in here thinking Jesus is a, is a liar. We don't believe that. But, and we're also quite certain that he wasn't just a lunatic. Like we don't, we don't tend to think that way. But functionally, functionally, we do fail to acknowledge him as Lord. Like we fail to submit our lives to his authority. I mean, we may do it in word. I mean, we'll say it. We, most of us have been coached along to know the right words to say. We can play the Christian part. We'll, we'll grant God one hour on a Sunday morning, but what about the other 167 hours in a week? Are we willing to make actual changes in how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we use our resources? And I'll just, just to show you how difficult this is, the why this isn't just a simple give sermon, is none of you thought it strange when I just said our money, our time, and our resources. You see, it, we still think they're ours. It's been a natural way of us hearing it our entire lives, that this is my bank account, that this is my house, that this is my car, that this is my time, this is my weekend, this is my... We could do this all day, right? Like, is the home that God has entrusted to you just a home, or is it a hub for gospel ministry? Is it your sanctuary, or is it God's house that he's given to you to use for his glory? That's a fair question based on this passage. Is the car that you drive just a car, or is it a vehicle of the good news? To carry you, a disciple, to wherever you might go, that God might use you there for his glory. 
Like that's a different way of looking at your Toyota. It just is. Sorry, we're in the suburbs, Honda. More Hondas here probably. I don't even know what that means. That was the dumbest thing I've ever said in front of a group of people. Like, is the car that you drive tomorrow morning, when you get in your car to go somewhere, is that car just a car or is that a God-given gift to carry you, a disciple of Jesus Christ, into the world to engage people for the sake of the cross, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of God's glory, so that they might meet you in the eternal dwellings? You see, Jesus has a way of taking very simple things and bringing them into very profound ramifications for us. We sit on the side of the hill and we hear him preach and we go, that sounds nice. He's a good teacher. I don't think he's crazy. But is he Lord? See, that's the question this passage begs of us. See, that's different. See, the truth is, and and you all know this, I don't have any guarantee of my next breath. And with the flu season in South Carolina, none of us do. I have no guarantee that I will see another day and no promise that tonight the storm won't come and wash away everything that I truly believe is mine. And the truth is, the reality is, just to kind of nail this, it's all his. All of it. It's all his. It has been entrusted to me. It has been it has been entrusted to you for a purpose. Just like we talk with the kids every week. God is a God of purpose. He's a God of intentionality. He made us for his glory and he has given you whatever you have, however little or however much you think it is, he has given that to you for his glory, not for yours. Not for yours. And Jesus is telling us here to be just as shrewd, to be just as strategic just as prudent with those things for the sake of the kingdom as the world is for its own personal comfort and security. You see, in Christ, we have a new motivation. We have a new motivation. The writer of Hebrews tells us that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every weight. That's like saying everything. Every little weight, every heavy weight, lay lay it all aside. And the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He said, Don't let the thorns, don't don't let the thorns grab you. Stay near the shepherd. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He continues, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We we look to the one right now who gave his life, who, who gave what was his. Remember, he said, I lay it down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down for you who gave what belonged only to him, who gave his very life in order that we might look forward to the eternal dwellings. Jesus is not asking his people to do anything that he was not willing to do himself. Jesus is not a hypocrite. He gave it all. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? Crushed for our iniquities. He gave it all. He gave all of that for you. Whether you think you're great or whether you think you're terrible, he gave it for you. And so we have to decide if Jesus is going to be Lord of our lives. Is he going to have authority over every facet, every facet of our existence? You have to decide. 
You've been given a gift of grace and mercy in Christ. It's yours. In fact, that's the only thing that you can, in fact, take with you. That's it. Everything else stays here. The manager in this parable was granting grace and forgiveness that was not his to give. But in Christ, you have received the gift of eternal life that cannot be revoked. You see, it's not just a hope. It's not even just a trust. It's an absolute guarantee for you. It's the greatest exchange that we could ever imagine. It's the most one-sided deal in history. Jesus pays the price. We gain his righteousness. And so that's what we walk in today. And everything else in this life is transformed because of that reality. Everything, every pain, every doubt, every hurt, every sin, all of that has been washed. And so we're called to go, to be shrewd, to be strategic, to be intentional with the things that God has given us. Let's stop sleepwalking. Stop sleepwalking. Let's get to work. Let's get to work for the kingdom. I've said it before and I will say it multiple, multiple times. If there's one empty chair among us, that's one too many. God didn't send you into your neighborhood. He didn't send you into your workplace. He didn't send you into your community so that you could be safe and comfortable. He sent you there for the kingdom. We sang a missions hymn today. We're about to close with, a, with an anthem that declares that I am thine, O Lord, right? I hope that's true. I hope it's true. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word to us. Thank you for breaking me this week. Thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit who comes and reminds me that I'm not my own. Forget my stuff. I don't belong to me. I am yours, bought at a very high price. God, and I'm not worth that. Like, I know me. I'm not worth what you did for me. And I I know these people, Lord. I mean, they are awesome. These are the greatest people I know on all the planet, and they are not worth it. That's why it's grace, and that's why it's mercy, because we don't deserve it. But you've done it for us, and so we walk in the light of that today. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, empty us of ourselves. Help us to walk as your children, as your sons and your daughters. Help us to give as you have given. Lord, I pray that's how we would be in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.